Everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. We're your hosts, Brian Edwards, Nathan Cravat. I'm J.C. Groves. It's good to be here with you for episode number 52. Guys, we have some of the most incredible patrons over on Patreon that support the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast every month. Yeah, you know, it, without somebody fueling the ministry, ministry doesn't happen. As much as we would like to believe that we could just make this happen on our own, I think all three of us know we can't. And it's awesome to know that uh, there are people who are behind us, who are supporting us, who are with us. It just means the world. It's an encouragement. You know, guys, we do have a little bit of monthly overhead uh, with hosting and uh, website development. Justin Knight, the real MVP, the guy behind the microphone that keeps the RFP on air, online, on website, the things flowing in and out of social media content every once in a while. Justin is the guy behind the scenes, but it takes a monthly overhead to keep this going. And so without the patrons, we literally would not be able to do what we're doing and to continue to get this content out to you. And uh, we just want to thank all of our patrons of Patreon. Uh, let's be honest, we're not making a lot of money off the podcast. We get soap every month, free soap <laughs> from a really good company, Free Life Soap. We love Miss McCribbin. And uh, you could check her out today by going to the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the Free Life Soap tab. Use your promo code RFP and get 20% off of your order. And guys, if any of you have ever considered becoming a patron, we've got some really cool things coming up that we want to make happen, like meetups and some other events that we cannot do on our own financially. So we invite you guys to jump on board and help us out if you believe in the mission, which is really what this ultimately comes down to. And I think many of our listeners will be really surprised at how $3 or $5 would make a huge difference in what we're trying to do at the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Well, I think people see that this has become an entire community. And there's more to this than the three of us thought when we were just getting started. I don't think we realized that people were searching for a place. I don't think we realized that people needed an extended family people who would understand, who would know how to help them navigate the journey that they're on. And, and God has used us uh, to be a part of that journey. And, and I think people are starting to see that, and it's just amazing. I was on a podcast last night called Rethinking Faith, and uh, I didn't know what the podcast was about. I was kind of worried. I was like, is this an atheist podcast? What are they going to ask me? But we went on, and I was a guest on there anyhow. And, man, this guy is an incredible dude. He comes from the EV-free background. And he said, hey, a lot of my listeners have been listening to y'all's podcast. He said, and it's incredible because y'all have opened my eyes to a whole nother world of Christian that I didn't even realize was out there and existed. He said, but it seems like as an outsider, and correct me if I'm wrong, this has turned into a full-blown ministry for y'all. He was like, now, are y'all full-time with the podcast? Because there's so much that go on. I was like, no. Definitely not full-time with the podcast. It's a full-time job. And without you patrons, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. Like today's episode, we're excited for week number two to have Barnabas Piper on the podcast with us. You heard a great message last week. This week, we're going to sit down and talk with Barnabas on the podcast. Y'all ready to get the show started? Let's do it. I'm ready. Let's go. You know what makes women stupid is college. Jesus was not a bartender. Hi, man. Two. You have lost your mind. Long tongue heifers have given me a lot more trouble than heifers wearing breeches. And you know that. Say amen right there. One. Let me tell you something, bozo. They'll be selling frosties in hell for this boy. Put on a pair of pink underwear. Amen. I sucked my thumb till I was 14 years of age. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. Good to have you here with us on this episode. Coming to you live from Danville, Virginia, Statesboro, Georgia. And Nathan, you seem to be in a different location today. Yes, sir. I am coming to you live for the very first time from Anderson, South Carolina. Wow, Anderson. That's not far from the independent Baptist mecca of the world, Greenville, South Carolina. 
It's just about 30 minutes away from what I hear, and I haven't been there yet, but I hear it's awesome, and I'm looking forward to it. So, Nathan, why are you in Anderson, South Carolina? Well, guys, you know the news, and I think some of our listeners have heard by now, but God is calling me and my family to Anderson, South Carolina. We have accepted a ministry position here. Good buddy of mine, Chad Gamble, at Gospel Light Church in Anderson, South Carolina. And we're here to visit this weekend. We're going to be headed back to Trenton, Georgia for the next month, the month of March, to wrap up the ministry there and transition. And I just want to say thank you to all of the people in Trenton, all the covenant partners at Hope Church, and all our friends and family and the elders there. They have just loved on us. And this is one of the most painful decisions in the ministry that we've ever had to make. But God is blessing the ministry of Hope Church in Trenton, Georgia. And I love the people. They're truly family. We have many that are immediate family, but many that have become family over the years. And they have been so understanding and have supported us. And there's a consensus among the leadership of the church. And they know that God is calling our family to this next step of ministry. And it's encouraging to have brothers and sisters in Christ that support you even when they're sad. And JC, you just walk through this. It's exciting, it's sad, it's hopeful. And honestly, we're a little anxious. We've got a house to sell. We've got a place to rent and buy. There's all kind of crazy decisions that are looming on the horizon, but we're very excited. Well, I just want to say that the people of Hope Church Danville Better not think because you two guys, since starting the podcast, <laughs> have made moves that they're going to be getting rid of me anytime soon. So uh, if you're listening from Danville, just know you're stuck with me and I'm stuck with you in spite of what these other fellas do. <laughs> I'm just glad Nathan got his heart right and he's coming back to student ministry. Come on, man. Associate pastor slash youth pastor. So excited, and I'm going to have the opportunity to lead two of my own daughters in youth ministry. Welcome back to the best calling in the world. Come on, baby. Let's go. We're excited about today's episode. As you know, we have Barnabas Piper back on the podcast with us today. And you know, last week, uh, the sermon was so powerful, so gospel-centered. I've never been more thankful for technical difficulties in all of my life, because (laughs) had we not had those technical difficulties, then our listeners would not have heard that that message. It wasn't a sermon. It was a message. I think you guys know what I would mean by the difference. Yeah. So I'm actually grateful that uh, that technology failed and, and that sermon, that message was declared over the people of God who listened to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. God is sovereign. Yes, he is. Well, Barnabas, welcome back to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Yeah, it's good to be back for take two, and uh, and I'm I'm grateful that y'all reached out to to find a message to put out there, and and the timing was uh, was really of God because it, it's one that I had I had just had a chance to preach the week prior, and so yeah, having a chance to put that out there, I hope it was an encouragement and a blessing to listeners in the uh, when we had hoped to put out the original interview. So I anticipate this being an even better time than we had last time. Amen. Yes, sir. Well, it was good last time, and that'll just have to remain between us, but I'm looking forward to our discussion today. A lot of our listeners have already expressed that they're interested in hearing this, especially after listening to your sermon. In the world that we came from, texts like that were preached, kind of like battering rams. They're trying to break the door down or beat us over the head and get us to perform in a certain way, but seeing how you handled that, Man, running back to Christ and saying that he's the only one that has ever fulfilled that, that was powerful. Yeah, well, thank you. And I didn't know what to make of Ecclesiastes the first, I don't know, probably 20 times I read it. You know, I grew up doing read through the Bible in a year plans and Bible reading competitions, you know, trying to basically see who who could read the most Bible in the least amount of time and whatever else. And uh, I never knew what to make of it. And it was mostly kind of a... it was a depressing book. Like it was right up there with Leviticus on the like I groaned when I got this got to this part in the Bible reading yeah. plan. And it wasn't until maybe the last 3 or 4 years that it really started to come alive to me how it fits in the wisdom literature as as really a hopeful book and then how it ties into the whole of scripture and points to Jesus, which all of a sudden became 
I mean, it was encouraging instead of, instead of burdensome at that point. If you want to think that the book of Ecclesiastes is the most exciting reading you've ever done, just read the genealogies in in first Chronicles. (laughs) When you balance that with Ecclesiastes, it's like, thank God Ecclesiastes is in the Bible. Oh, but here, I loved I loved the genealogies when I got to Bible reading plans because you could do like nine chapters in five minutes because you just like buzz through them. You're just like so-and-so begat so-and-so and flip a page and so-and-so begat so-and-so and flip a page. You're just checking all the boxes in, in a minute. So it's funny, when I was sitting in a Old Testament survey and New Testament survey in college, Dr. David Kemp, uh, he had us write this saying that we said all the time, this is a truthful reading of my, this is a truthful account of my reading of the word of God. I realize that I'm not just turning this into a professor, but I'm saying to God, I've read these words in your holy scripture. And then you had to sign it with God as my witness and you had to sign it. And we got to that part of scripture and we went through and None of us read it. I mean, it was just like, because we're doing it. And this one kid, his name was Javi. He's from Greece. He played basketball. And he got back there, and he just signed it. Well, David Kemp's standing over his shoulder as he's sitting there writing, and he had to go back and look at what chapters he read. He comes back in, and he has this dictionary. We didn't know it at the time, but it was a massive book. And he goes, when you lie about reading the Word of God, I don't care if it's the begots and it's all these names. He starts ripping pages out of this dictionary, and they're like going above his head. He takes it, and he throws it in the trash can that trash can like whoa whoa boom he goes listen he said that's what it's like when you lie about reading to the word of god and then he said let's pray and we're all scared to death we're like oh my gosh i was like there's gonna be a test on all of those names and i didn't read any of them (laughs) about 15 minutes into class he walks over and picks it up out of the trash he goes it's a dictionary not a bible by the way and throws it back in the trash can and we're all like i am reading every word jot and tittle from here on out if if what you just said is so the heart of legalism because what were you afraid of a test you weren't afraid that you actually offended god you're like oh no i'm about to fail a test (laughs) exactly his message completely missed you and you're like oh crap i'm getting an f (laughs) yeah that's the worst that could happen well you know the way we were brought up sin wasn't against god sin was disappointing your parents sin was making your parents look bad in front of the brethren or the church people sin was anything that did anything to make your family look less than perfect. And and that's why the three of us got most of the whippings we got growing up. It wasn't because it was sin against God, but it was because we made our parents look bad. JC did that a lot. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, I, I caught, uh, I caught all that pressure as particularly from a, from the pastor's kid perspective, my parents didn't put it on me, but from the outside, there was that sense of like, you have a name to live up to. And that was, yeah, I felt that it wasn't expressed quite as explicitly, but but those pressures were there for sure. Yeah, I think that's something we all felt. I think you may have felt it a little bit more than we did, given your situation. So why don't you share a little bit of your story with us and let us know who Barnabas Piper is? Yeah, I'll... Uh... I'll try to I'll try to not take up the the remainder of our time talking about myself so much because stories can run long. But um, so I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad is John Piper. Uh, some listeners will know who that is. Uh, others don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> and so he became a pastor three years before I was born, and then retired from the pastorate on my thirtieth birthday. So that was the entirety of my growing up context, even well into adulthood. Was was as a as the son of a pretty prominent pastor um it wasn't a fundamentalist church in the in the kind of the the fully cultural sense uh it was it was a real a really theologically robust context though so my parents were really faithful to teach me the word of god um starting i mean before i can remember i'm sure the first books they were reading to me were bible story books of of one form or another um and great sunday school teachers great youth leaders all faithful Bible teachers, um, which was a huge blessing for me, or or rather it became a huge blessing for me later on. At the time, it actually kind of set me up, that not their fault, just kind of where my heart was at. It set me up for a, a real kind of spiritual difficulty because I knew a lot more than I believed, I think. And mm. the I, I had a I had an overdeveloped theological sense and an underdeveloped sense of what it means to really follow Jesus, which leads to a whole lot of hypocrisy and a whole lot of sin. And then alongside that, and, and a lot of that was was compounded by being the, the pastor's kid because, 
or one of the pastor's kids. I have multiple siblings. Um, because there's the outside expectation to live up to a certain thing. So whether it's a certain kind of behavior, a certain amount of knowledge. I mean, I just remember sitting in Sunday school and, you know, the teacher poses a question and nobody answers. And then after about five awkward seconds of silence, kind of all heads slowly turn and look at the pastor's kid and be like, you got this one, bro. This one's on you. And and I hated that, but I also kind of relished it. Cause I was, it was a chance to kind of show off in that context. Like, yeah, I do, I do, I do got this. I know the answer. Um, so it, it bred a kind of a sense of internal legalism. I need to live up to these expectations that aren't necessarily of God. They're not, they're not godly expectations, but also a sense of pride because I was able to, to show off and show out a little bit. Um, and so for me, there wasn't, you know, a lot of pastor's kids are kind of prone towards rebellion. That pressure makes them crack. They hate, they hate the expectations. And so they push back. I just had more of like a quietly contrarian bent where I just was confident that I knew better than everybody else. And so I just did whatever I wanted to do, which mostly fell in line with being moral, but also generally ignored authority if I didn't feel like following authority. Or I would, you know, everything was was up to me. I just, I wasn't cowed by authority, including the authority of God. And so I just, I was just so confident in myself. And that carried all the way up through college. Uh, went, to, went to Wheaton College, so a solid evangelical school, studied theology there, which kind of compounded the problem. Because again, I'm getting a really robust theological education while still having an underdeveloped sense of, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to submit your life to Christ. I was a believer, but not a, but, but just a real infant in the faith at that point. Um, and then in my mid twenties, all of that hypocrisy, all of that pride, had led me to a place of, I'm I'm serving in church. I'm helping lead the youth. I'm teaching with some regularity. I'm working at a at a Christian publishing company, doing pretty well in my job. But on the other side, I'm trying to present myself as something I'm not. I'm trying to cut corners and get ahead. And I just wasn't patient to follow the Lord's leading. Um, at, at 26, I wanted to be where a 36-year-old was financially and everything else. And uh, and so I started cutting corners at work and, and ended up getting fired from that job. And uh, then to make matters more difficult, but again, also God's hand at work in this, was that the people who ran that company were members of the same church I was at. They were they were elders, um, or one of them was an elder at the church. And so I couldn't separate my work failure from my faith failure anymore because it got brought into the leadership of the church. And they did it very discreetly. There was no shaming. They their their effort was to restore me. So they fired me and then sought to restore me. That's wow. the, talk about the grace of God. Um and and so all of that, so if, if I had been in a different context, I'm a hundred percent sure I would have just lied to people. You know, I lost my job. I was downsized. I was whatever. And then I would have gone and looked for another job and just, and nothing would have changed. But in God's kindness, I was in a context where I couldn't do that. Um, and so what that led me to was a period of just profound questions of how did I get here? of all the things that I was handed growing up, because so much of the faith that I had at that point was just stuff that had been given to me. I don't think I had ever sat down and, and, and come to terms with it as this is the thing that I believe about Jesus Christ. Um, and, and then there was also a period of looking at it and going, is any of this, like, is any of this worth walking away from? It was kind of my opportunity. You, you see a lot of people, you, like the deconstruction of their faith is a wonderful buzzy phrase now, um, yeah. which basically just means I stopped believing in Jesus. It's just a fancy way of saying I, I don't believe in Jesus. Um, and and I, I remember considering that and just going, can, can I walk away from this? Is there is there something else? And again, by God's grace, just he, he held on to me and said, you know, made it clear that no, there is no, there's no walking away from this. There's life here that's going to be a hard road because repentance is hard. Restoration is hard. Re, rebuilding trust that I had broken was hard. Um, 
but also there's grace and there's life and anything else is just, just a gaping void of, of lifelessness. And so that became a turning point for me and my faith. And I'm grateful for it because the years since have not been easy years. There's been difficulties in, in my personal life, difficulties in work life, just all these different things. But because I, I can now look back on that and go, Jesus showed himself to be real. I know what the grace of God means to somebody who has absolutely failed in every significant way. Um, I, I just, I don't have to, I don't have to have rattled faith anymore because God's already showed himself to be that gracious and that good. And so that's, that's kind of, that brings me to the, the very surprising place of being an assistant pastor now, which I would never have predicted. But again, God continues to move in, in these mysterious ways. Barnabas, I heard you, you talk out, um, the last time we were in a conversation for us, the thing that was really difficult was that we were being yelled at frequently from the pulpit. That was the predominant preaching style that we grew up in. Um, the old saying was, if you're not spitting on six rows and walking on six inches of your britches legs, then you're not preaching. <laughs> and so we were screamed at and there were manipulative invitations and all of that. JC posted a video this past week that, JC, that video took me back yeah, to what I lived through hundreds of times, not just once, but hundreds of times. Mm. Legalism was the thing that made it difficult for us. You described the thing that made it difficult for you was the people you were associated with were so scholarly that they always had the right answer for everything. You know, anybody that's ever gone to the uh, Desiring God website or anyone that's ever listened to the people that you sat under preach the word, they were scholarly individuals. That's their approach to the text. And, and so can you talk that out a little bit, how, how there was even a legalistic bent in that? Yeah, and that's the, the, the way that you phrase that as a legalistic bent is, is, a good, is a good setup, because I don't even know if it was intentional as much as just what I perceived but my perception growing up, and and even to a degree now, as I look at people in 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 how they you know certain camps, certain theological camps, there is an expectation that every question has an answer. That systematic theology primarily will will give a a nice, neat answer to almost any complex biblical question. And so growing up, I didn't really, I didn't push back against that. I just lived into it. I just leaned into, yes. And, and I prided myself on having answers. I loved, but, but I liked answers for the sake of being right, not answers for the sake of seeking truth. You mm -hmm. know, there's, there's a huge difference in terms of um, what, am I getting to know God better or am I just winning arguments? Am I, am I kind of airbrushing my own reputation as a smart dude? Um, and I really liked being the smart dude, the the quick-witted one, the one who could win an argument, kind of all of that. <clears throat> but but it didn't set me up well for when I encountered questions I didn't have answers to. Eventually, I mean, any Christian runs into a situation where we can't answer the question, which is inevitable because God is infinite. God is God is by definition beyond our understanding, which means we are going to have questions. That means God has plans, God has wisdom, God does things that all exist outside of our ability to understand it. And once I realized that, it, it, I didn't know, I didn't have a route forward because you can't sum up God in a tidy way. When you realize that, <clears throat> that's, I think that's like, therein lies faith. Faith is coming to the end of your understanding of God and looking at looking at who you see God to be by his word, by his promises and saying, but I believe God in all the areas that I don't know and I don't understand. And so, yeah, that that uh, that neat and tidy answer aspect of things. I don't blame the people who did that because what they were trying to do was give me a brick by brick built foundation of faith. What I took out of it was an arrogant arsenal of, of answering questions. So their intent and what I received were not the same thing. Mm. And, uh, and in the years since, as, as, as I've learned, I've learned that getting to the place of saying, I don't know, but I trust isn't blind faith. It's not ignorant faith. 
it's a it's really a recognition of God's greatness beyond my understanding. Barnabas, you have written a book that dives into what we just talked about a little bit here called The Pastor's Kid. You want to tell us a little bit about your book there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I probably in 2012 or so, so coming up on 10 years ago now, I had just I kind of just gotten started as a writer. So blogging some, contributing to some different websites, just as opportunities came up. Um, and I was asked to write a couple different articles regarding a pastor's family. So one was an article about how to pray for a pastor's family. One was uh, what a pastor's kids need from their dads. Um, and the response, so two things happened. One, the response to those articles blew me away. Apparently, I didn't realize that I kind of assumed that as a pastor's kid feeling these unique troubles and pressures, I was, I was pretty isolated. Um, I hadn't really talked to anybody about it in depth. And then realizing that there are thousands of pastor's kids from all different denominations, all different church sizes and backgrounds who feel the same way at from ages like 14 to 54, you know, like there's, there's a huge range. And then the second thing that happened was realizing I have a lot more to say about this than an 800 word article. Like this is just <laughs> starting to stir things yeah. in me. And so I just started putting together my thoughts, my notes, my reflections. And then I wondered, I wonder if I'm crazy. You know, I wonder if I'm the only one who's like this. So I started corresponding with all these other pastors, kids, you know, social media has a lot of downsides, but one upside is that you can put out, put word out and say, Hey, any other pastors, kids who have thoughts and 50 people will respond and say, yeah, I do. And then, so, you know, those 50 or 60 pastors, kids. So what I ended up, what I ended up writing was a book that was written from the perspective of a pastor's kid on behalf of all pastors kids. So it's not just, this isn't my memoir or like an expose into my family. That's not a book that it might be a book. Some people want to read. It's definitely not one worth writing though. Um, but rather a, this is what it looks like Mm. as a pastor's kid to face the pressures, to face the expectations, to face the unique difficulties of, of finding, finding our place in the church and especially finding our, our own, personal relationship with Christ. And then the other kind of the other aim of it is then to help pastors, anybody raising a ministry kid. So not not just senior pastors, but ministry kids in general. If you're raising those kids, how do you interact with them in a way that frees them from some of these burdens? How do you protect them? How do you converse with them? And then, you know, the third aspect would just be maybe there are members in the church who really love their pastor's family and are looking for unique ways to, to pray for, to encourage. And this would be this would be for them as well. But it's really for the pastor's kids and for the pastors themselves. Well, I can tell you this as a pastor and a dad of six kids, I'm excited to not just read the book, but to hand that down to my kids as they get older and be like, hey. Welcome to your world. <laughs> Read this book, yeah. you know, because it's gonna it's gonna happen. And I mean, it's already my son's and getting ready to go into sixth grade, and there's already starting that trend of oh, you're the pastor's son. And so yes. you know, as it, it terrifies me raising six kids <laughs> as a pastor. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, with resources like that out there to help them and folks that, you know, we got the PK podcast that just came on the RFP network, um, you know, with guys like like John Groves and like you that are out there that are giving good examples of opportunities for pastors, kids to look at and say, hey, there is a reason for my existence and going through this that gives them hope to be a pastor's kid. Yeah, and it's been it's been really encouraging. So the book first came out in 2014 and then was re-released in 2020 uh, with a different publisher. But just the consistent feedback I've gotten from two, there's two groups of people who just always encourage me. One is the pastor's kids themselves. And I've gotten emails from people who are 16 and 17 and then people who are, you know, middle-aged. They're, they're, yeah. they're in their 50s, their 60s saying this is this puts into words things that I have felt and didn't know how to articulate or it helped me realize that it I shouldn't give up mm. that you know those are my I love those Shoot. and then the other is from the the parents the the particularly dads but moms as well who read it and say I didn't even know I needed to talk to my kid about this wow. and it's opened it's just it's ripped the lid off some stuff which is I mean what a gift from God, because I, you know, I wrote it in hopes that it would help somebody. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any yeah. great confidence in it. And to see God using it that way is, is really wonderful. It's awesome. One of the reasons we started this podcast was to reach out to people 
who had walked away from their faith or people who felt like they didn't know what they believed anymore. One of the things that spoke to me most in your book, The Pastor's Kid, was the analogy that you used about the housing development, (laughs) the prefab houses, and likening that to parents that pass their faith down to their kids and how that's not sufficient. Can you walk us through that analogy? Yeah, so the analogy itself is, is uh, so at the time I wrote it initially, I lived in the Chicago suburbs. I've since moved to the Nashville suburbs. And uh, as, as is the case with almost every suburb, you know, you turn onto a street that's named something like Woodridge Way or Creekside something or other, you know, pick, pick your favorite like nature term. And then you drive into a neighborhood with winding streets and small saplings planted in front of every house that looks exactly the same. Or maybe there's three different floor plans. But what you find is that in a huge number of these neighborhoods, there's there's it's they're pre-designed. Every house has has minimal floor plans. And you can pick a few of the details, but not many. You know, you can do like the gray counters or the black counters or whatever, but it's it's all the same stuff. And so many of them are pretty cheaply built. Like there, I've talked to so many friends who bought these houses and they say, yeah, you want to be the second or third owner because the first two are the ones who fix all the problems because <laughs> the siding comes off when the wind blows, the plumbing goes out, the HVAC units are garbage, et cetera, et cetera. You know, new roofs needed, all that stuff. Well, I realized that's, that is so close to what, what happens when so many Christians hand off our faith to our kids. We are giving them a, a predetermined, this is this is the neat, tidy, what Christianity looks like, and it's kind of poorly built. And so, because we're not, we're not dealing with difficult questions, you know, we're not giving them room to kind of explore. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean explore, like explore their gender. I'm talking about exploring, like, what does it mean for God to be good in the middle of suffering? Like, that's a hard question that yeah. it'd be great to talk to a 15 year old about. Um, so giving them a chance to to figure out what does it look like for them to follow Jesus. So to, to extend the analogy, rather than saying, here's your Christianity floor plan and your cheap prefab junk materials, to give them the best possible materials we can in terms of biblical foundation and an understanding of the freedom to go with to go to God with our questions and the a, a strong understanding of the character of God, because that overcomes so many things. If we don't understand God's reasons, we can still understand God's character. And so, so you give them these profound foundations and then realize that over time, they are going to build their own floor plan of faith, if you will. Mm. It's going to be their own Christian home and it will be better than what you would have handed them because it's going to be one that they're they're doing in community with other believers. They're doing with the Holy Spirit's help, not just you saying, "No, this is the this is the the placement of that. This is where that should go in your house." And you know, ideally, they're coming to you for advice and things. But rather than a pre kind of a prefab cheap junk faith, we want to give them a strong idea of what does it look like to build. What materials are you working with? And, and, and then kind of, you really just have to entrust them to God to, to build the house, if you will. So Barnabas, a lot of people who listen to the RFP podcast, our preacher's kids are definitely ministry kids because most of the people who were in the independent Baptist church, you were involved in some way you served. Mm -hmm. A lot of people spent more time at the church building than they spent at their own houses. So, um, I think a lot of kids would be confused like I was what is being accepted by God and what is living under the weight of pleasing your parent. I wasn't even right with God. I wasn't a follower of Jesus. Um, As a matter of fact, I was in a season of rebelling against God and rebelling against what I had, had been taught, but because I could sing, I was a part of the ministry. You want to talk about confusing Be an individual who is far, far from God, who can't wait for the church services to be over so you can talk like you want to talk, so you can be with who you want to be with, so you can do what you want to do, but yet you're the one who's up on the platform 
using your gift and while you are, people are crying and while you are, people are raising their hands and while you are, people are talking about the Holy Spirit moving. I was involved in ministry and wasn't even right with God. It was completely confusing. So what would you say to the preacher's kids who've never gotten beyond the confusion? They're adults and they're still trying to work that out. Yeah, I think the, the advice I would give a, a person in that place, well, first I would empathize because there is, when, when so much, when we have never resonated with so much of what has been kind of put on us, in terms of the expectations, the ministry expectations, or the opportunities, you know, hey, we expect you to lead, you're, you're great. You know, I was told from when I was 15 or 16 that, you know, I was kind of a um, a charismatic leader of sorts, like I just had leadership qualities. Well, that's that, that's that may be true, but it's not great if I'm not following Jesus humbly and if I don't have a keen sense of who I am in Christ. Like, I, where am I leading people? There's a, a strong sense of the blind leading the blind there. Um, so I would tell them the same thing that a wise um, one of those. So when I went through that period where I was being uh, struggling with questions, struggling with doubts, w- what do I believe? That was that was my my experience with the question you just asked. Sort of a crumbling of all of these expectations and all of this this faux faith, and and then dealing with all this. And one of the elders at our church was a guy named Wayne Martindale. I'm going to call him out by name because he was, he was a gift to me and to the church. Um, and I don't remember the exact conversation, but he more or less, we, we were sitting in his office and I was just kind of spiritually dead, slumped in a chair. And he, he just said, here's what I think you need to do. I think you need to try your hardest to forget every Sunday school lesson you've ever heard everything you think you know Jesus is, every answer that you you have come prepared with, like you just have in your back pocket, hmm. and you need to go back to the Gospels and try to see who Jesus is. So start reading Matthew and just go and, and try to see who is the man on the pages. Hmm. And, and of course, in my mind, I'm like, I have read Matthew. I've memorized a third of Matthew or whatever. You know, like I've taught these things. I don't need to read this. This is... I still have that sort of pastor's kid arrogance in me at that point. But I didn't, I mean, I knew he was probably right in some sense. I was like, fine, I'll give it a shot. And I make it all the way through Matthew, whatever. I make it halfway through Mark with a shrug. And I get to Mark 9. And Mark 9 tells the stories of Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration He encounters a father who has brought his demon-possessed son. The father is at his wit's end. He's tried everything to to rescue his son. And he essentially says, Jesus, can you help me? And Jesus says, I can if you believe. And the father's response is, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm. And it wasn't like a lightning strike for me, but for the first time in years, that verse just, it got its hooks in me. And because I, I began to see what a paradigm of faith can look like when you don't know what you believe, when when you, you you know some things are true, but you're not sure about the rest, when you struggle with sins, like you know all of your own weaknesses. And I saw in that verse, I said, oh, there's there's a place to come to Jesus and say, I believe this little bit. But I really need help with all the rest of this, whether it's stuff I don't understand or stuff I'm rebelling against or stuff I, I, I don't know what to make of. And the thing is, that hasn't changed in the last 10 years for me. The list of things on I believe and help my unbelief has changed because I, I think I believe more and better now than I did 10 years ago. But I still need to pray help my unbelief every day. Mm. Um, I mean, that's a, That's like a start your day kind of prayer. And then the other thing I noticed was just the way that Jesus responds to that and every other doubter he encounters is, is with open arms. He's always, he always corrects. He always says, this is what belief should look like, but also let me show you mercy. Let me show you grace. Let me show you kindness, which is so antithetical to a legalistic understanding of anything to have a Jesus who says, you don't need to have it all right. Like bring your questions, bring your failures, I've got you, and I'm going to help you grow in your faith. You know, Bartimaeus, 
a lot of the stuff that we grew up in, there's extra biblical rules. There's a lot of these uh, man-made standards and preferences that are preached as gospel, um, when honestly, it's just prostituting the gospel. It's making it say something that it doesn't. Uh, I'd love to hear you speak into, you know, just that concept of, of extra biblical rules, if you will. Yeah, that uh <laughs> I want to I want to be careful how I respond because I have a strong visceral like hateful reaction to those things and mm. I want to make sure that I fall into the category of be angry and do not sin. The long and the short of it is that there are two ways to mislead people when it comes to the gospel. You can remove pieces from the gospel. We don't need Jesus's death on the cross. We don't need the atonement. We don't need forgiveness of sins. And you just move away from Christianity pretty boldly when you do that. Right, yeah. You know that that's a, that's sort of a, a, the classic drift of, of theological liberalism is to remove the hard pieces of the gospel that require the death, they re, they, the appeasement of the wrath of God, etc. The other way you can bastardize the gospel is to add to it. Because the gospel is, I, I heard a I heard a scientist use this phrase one time. He talked about irreducible complexity, where if you take anything away, the whole thing breaks. But the same is true if you start adding things on, you you, you break the thing too. Like there's just, mm-hmm. it is what it is. So when we begin to add to the gospel, we've just redefined it. We've created hurdles between us and Jesus. So what does the Bible say? It says believe and be baptized. What does the Bible say? It says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is the opposite of legalism, like antithetical from the mouth of Jesus Christ, saying there is one way to be saved, and it is bring all of your crap to me, and I will take care of the rest, and then you follow me. And Every single thing that we put in the way that says, do this first, do this better before you come to Jesus is a lie from the pit of hell. These are the things that Jesus says, so it would be better to tie a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the sea. And, and this, is, this is coming from the pulpit. This is coming from parents. We are teaching our kids. We are teaching our congregations that you need to work harder and do more before Jesus will accept you. And Jesus himself condemns that. He says, no, let the little children come to me. What is a little child? It is an absolute moral chaotic monster who loves freely and asks questions with, with abandon. Amen. And, and that's what Jesus says. He's like, bring your moral monstrosity and your complete confusion, but also your warmth and your need and, and come here and I will take care of you. And we've said, no, grow up, become mature, couch your questions, fix yeah. your stuff, and then come. Mm. That doesn't mean we don't have morals. It means that morals are the response to following Jesus, not the way to get to Jesus. Because mm. Jesus said, you know, the, the Bible talks about growing in holiness. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is coming to Jesus with our mess, being transformed by the Holy Spirit into Christ likeness over the course of the rest of our lives because we get to keep coming back to Jesus. Like it, he, doesn't, he doesn't only accept us the one time, it's every other time thereafter. And so we move from unsaved mess to saved mess, and then the trajectory is less and less messy over the course of our lives as we grow in Christ-likeness, but that all happens through him. And so there's a, I, I would imagine your listeners are much less inclined to remove things from the gospel than to deal, than to struggle with the additions that have been laid on it. Cut through that nonsense. It, it's not real. It's not real because Jesus said it wasn't real. I definitely agree with you on that. A lot of our listeners haven't dealt so much with churches that tried to add legalistic requirements onto salvation. Mm-hmm. But once you're saved, back up the dump truck, there's this huge list of things that they say this is what a Christian has to look like. And in your book, The Pastor's Kid, you had a quote that really resonated with me. You said, these are like holiness hoops through which the pastor's kid jumps. Really, yeah. anybody has to jump to get to God, whether it's for salvation or to maintain their salvation. Yeah, I mean, what I just said about coming to Jesus to be saved is the same The same exact thing applies to coming to Jesus in repentance. So every Christian is going to have to repent probably somewhere between, I don't know, seven and a thousand times a day. 
because we're just we're we're walking failures in so many ways because of sin nature. But also in Christ you are a new creation. So there's there's a there's a new reality and a new trajectory. So to put moral burdens on Christianity is to completely misapply morality. Mm. And it's I mean when when Jesus goes through all the you have heard that you have heard this, but I say to you this. You have heard that it was said, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy. He is removing the hoops. Essentially, he's saying the heart of the Christian is to be like Christ. Transformation into Christ-likeness lifts us into morality, a desire to, to be truthful, right, upstanding, righteous people, not I have to be righteous before I can approach Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so if we... Whether we're trying to get to Jesus the first time or get back to Jesus after failing, the hoops are falsehoods regardless. The only thing that we need is humility and an acknowledgement of our need. That's how we get to Jesus, whether we are saved or are not yet saved. You humbly approach Jesus and say, help. And he says, got you. Man, it it almost seems... Like because of the culture that we grew up in, specifically in the IFB, that that is too easy. Like there's too much that we have to do in order to to earn that forgiveness. Because we almost take it like the Mormon Church. They say in the Book of Mormon, "For by grace are you saved through faith, only after you've done all you can do." I really feel like that's the IFB motto. Also, it's like because we're we're saved, and then we have to do all these good works to keep earning favor and and respect and honor from God. Like that, He's going to keep giving us good things if we keep doing good stuff but if we fall off the bandwagon well we're going to hell in a handbasket and it's like the hoops that we keep having to jump through are what's put in our minds so much that we have the hardest time breaking free from getting out of jumping through those hoops where it's just like he's offering it just so freely yeah jc what you said just reminded me that uh multiple times over the course of my life and even a conversation that i had with another individual in the last couple of weeks People would be brought up before the congregation and humiliated yeah. when there was failure in their lives. I mean, I've witnessed that happening. You know, the young girl who who messed up, you know, even to the extent of, you know, things as simple as albums other than Christian albums were found in their bedroom. And so the next week, the youth pastor stands up and preaches against the wrong kind of music. And that person is made to feel as if they aren't even a follower of Jesus, which is why, you know, to, to say something a little differently than Nathan said it a moment ago, I was very confused about salvation. Very confused. And I think I attended more church services likely than anybody I would ever meet or know because my dad was an evangelist, 26 different states, 50 weeks a year five to six nights a week. And the three of us at times have been in camp meetings where we heard as many as 40 to 50 sermons in a single week. And so I've heard a I'm lot sorry, of preaching. That sounds terrible. Yeah. It was I'm, just, you know, it was abusive. It, it, it was. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. Like that, that doesn't sound like the road to righteousness. That sounds awful to me. Yeah, it was. And, and it was confusing, but, but here's my point. I was confused about salvation. I saw other people who are confused about salvation and I saw people abused in the church, humiliated in the church because of their sin, and it created a culture of doubt. I can never be good enough. I will never live up to God's standard. I am inherently destined to be without God because I am I'm hopelessly immoral. Rather than that being the basis of needing Jesus and looking to him as the solution for your sin problem. And that's the thing, like the starting place of I'm not good enough and I can't measure up, it, the the responses to that go one of two ways. You either, you, you go into kind of the dejection and like the, the morality spin cycle where you're like, I've just got to keep trying, the, the kind of hamster wheel of trying to get mm. closer to God. Or you go the route which Jesus calls us to, which is you're absolutely right. You're not good enough. I mean, Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's not a single dead person who has ever solved that problem. But God, 
And he goes on to talk about how God gave life and it's by grace you have yeah. been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves. Like it's right there. Just yeah. quit quit trying so hard to get to God and and just turn to Jesus and he he'll he'll walk you in. You'll be cleansed by his blood. I mean and and that's the thing is like there's just a the moral starting place is right. The, the the understanding of depravity is right. Yeah. The response yeah. to depravity has to be cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus. That is it. That's all you've got. I think the freedom Man. that comes when you realize how much he loves us and cares about us and knows <laughs> yes. us as his kid. You know, I, I thought about this while you were talking. I'm sitting here thinking about my kids and, you know, pastor's kids. But my daughter, Tink, when she was like one maybe one and a half she's sitting on my lap and she looks up at me in this goofy grin and vomits all over me i mean in my beard in my <laughs> ear on my chest and you got to understand something about me barnabas i'm a sympathy puker i literally threw up on her like she puked on me and i threw up on her and i yelled down to my wife and i'm like babe you've got to get up here we're puking on each other and we are <laughs> laughing while throwing up on each other it was the craziest most awkward incredible weird moment in my life but i got to thinking about that in that moment like my daughter is vomiting on me but I love this kid so much like in this moment I just want to like That's hug awesome. her but she's covered with vomit that'd make me gag again and 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 I got to think you know, God loves even the vomit stuff in us like he loves the puke side the bad stuff that nobody sees the stuff that we try to hide that we that we feel like we can't let anybody know because it's not going to earn God's favor because it's not meeting his standard that was the stuff that we repressed and put down in that we thought we'll never be able to achieve this level of a relationship with God because it's in us and nobody knows about it and this is what's going to separate us forever from him man he loves that about us and he says we're you're my kid I love not just the good stuff that everybody sees I love the bad stuff the vomit side of you JC I love that that's an awesome analogy Paul repeatedly says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were God's enemies, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that he He loved us. But I can hear some of our haters now and people who listen to this show just to find fault and just to prove the fact, the theory that they have that we're heretics. I can hear some of them now just the gears are turning and they're saying, oh, JC's saying that God loves sin. He loves the sin inside of us. And that's not at all what you're saying. You're saying that just like your daughter had some gross stuff inside of her, that didn't stop you from loving her because you understand that that's not her identity. There are a lot of things about us that aren't pretty and that aren't beautiful. And I have four children, and there are many things that they've done that have that have uh, caused rifts in our relationships, as I have with my own parents. But man... I love my children, and the the worse they are, the more that brings up the heart of love in me to see them helped and redeemed and transformed. And I don't love them a fraction as much as God loves me. When I, I think what, what stands out to me about that is both I mean, the, the beauty of what you said, but then also the kind of the ugly underbelly of it, which are the parents for whom that's not true. Yeah. You know, the like, there are so many kids who've had to who who feel like they have had to earn their parents' affection by by having to live up to a standard, which of course then they project onto God. If if I can't, if my dad won't love me unless I X, and and of course X is a moving target. You never arrive at it. It's you know it's it's it, it, that's what legalism does. It constantly moves the bullseye, and so. If that's how our parents were, and thankfully my parents weren't like that, so I yeah. I have learned this more secondhand than than by experience. Then it's really even harder to look at God and go, "There's a different version of Father." In fact, there's a prototype of Father, the what fathers are supposed to be, that says, "I love you as my child. Yeah. I love you so much that I gave up my firstborn to to make you my child, mm. and no one is going to snatch you out of my hand." I mean, there's, there's trying to, trying to plant yourself in those verses. My dad, my dad has loved me unconditionally since before I knew what love was. And I still struggle to understand those verses. There are a lot of people for whom that's not true. And I can only imagine that struggle. And that's where it's just a, it's a constant coming back and going, who does God portray himself as? Who is this father? Because that, that's what's true and what real. And, and, and if your parents have failed on that front, they need, they need the father's love. 
I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Fred Affman, and he said, remember who you are and whose you are. And I, I think we could all raise our hand at a moment in time where our dads or those kids that are in ministry have said, hey, don't forget whose kid you are. Don't make a yeah. mess out of my name. You know what I mean? And so you lived with that fear going back to what you talked about. But I love that quote, don't forget whose you are and who you are, because in him, you're his child. Barnabas, in your book, Help My Unbelief, you talked about the old saying that we grew up hearing probably more than any other saying out there. And that is the saying, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Man. Which I think, to some extent, that can be good, but I think that made it really confusing for us to hear a saying like that when we were given all these preferences and extra-biblical commandments that we couldn't back up with Scripture. But they seem to be on the same level or even more important. Could you speak into that a little bit? Yeah, I think I, I think that phrase is probably it, it probably started with with the right intent, which is yeah. we want to live in submission to God's word. It's the final authority. I mean, if if you're if you're familiar with the reform tradition, you've got sola scriptura as as one of the kind of the tenets of this. Like this is this is the the authoritative word. Okay. Good. I think we're all in agreement on that on that front. But the reality is that the Bible, a you believing it doesn't necessarily settle anything for somebody else. That's a matter of that's a matter of the Holy Spirit's persuasion in somebody's life. But b the Bible by definition cannot settle everything, and it doesn't intend to. The Bible raises as many questions as it answers because. The nature of God. We talked about this earlier that God is, if God is infinite in his nature, he's infinite in his goodness, he's infinite in his wisdom, his his knowledge is too wonderful for us. He can't put all that in 1,200 pages or whatever our Bibles are. I guess it depends on, on what format you use. You know, he can't put that in 66 short books. What he can put in 66 short books and what he did with perfection on purpose was exactly what we needed to know who he is what his what his intention is what salvation is the narrative arc of redemption how and and but he didn't answer every question in there yeah and there are places where he's like and you don't get to know this you don't get to know the day or time i'm coming back you just need to know that i'm coming back i mean the the when he says that such knowledge, you know, the psalmist says such knowledge is too wonderful for me. What he's saying is God is doing a million things every minute that I'm not aware of and I could not possibly ever be aware of. So if we say the Bible says that I believe that that settles it, we, we have oversimplified the human interaction with God and the fact that if somebody is in a profoundly difficult situation, whether it's an existential doubt, uh, suffering, a moral crisis, it's not as simple as slap a Bible verse on it. There's The Bible absolutely speaks to that situation and has the truth that that person needs to know, but to dumb it down to, Bible says that I believe that that settles, it does not settle it. It doesn't settle them at all. There is an invitation into a reality, an identity, a relationship, and a faith in Christ that that leads to a settled place. The Bible talks about bring your prayers and petitions to God, and and the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will come. There, there's a that's an ongoing process. That's closer to settled it. Not there's this there's this one proof text that I slapped on this thing, and so we we have to be confident in the complexities of the Bible and comfortable with some things that we go, yeah, the Bible doesn't really answer that question. It tells me everything I need to know for salvation, for life as a believer, for all of the meaningful aspects of life, but it doesn't answer every question. Hey, just for the record, I wrestle more with the fact that the book of Jonah ends with God talking to Jonah about beef than I do with when Christ <laughs> is going to return. <laughs> because it's like, you know, Jonah, if you don't love the people, if I kill the people, what about the cows? Don't don't hate the cows, Jonah. And then it's like over. <laughs> what, what happens next? 
you know, Christ will return when he returns. But what about that? There's some very uncomfortable texts in the Bible, which don't usually get taught in Sunday school. All the flannel, all the flannel graph, all the flannel boards yeah. and Sunday school classes everywhere didn't touch on like half of Genesis or any of Judges, you know. And uh, I don't remember a flannel graph of somebody getting their head nailed to the ground with a tent peg. That would have been a cool Sunday school lesson. But uh, like all of that stuff's in the Bible. So again, if you go to the Bible says that I believe that that settles it. What, what about where the Bible very much unsettles things? Where it, where it rattles us in terms of just the really difficult texts about God devoting something to destruction or the, these, these things that you're like, ooh, that's very uncomfortable. What is settled? What just got settled in those texts? There has to be a, there has to be a more comprehensive understanding of the greatness of God and how he portrays himself through scripture in terms of an invitation to belief and faith, but not a tidy summing up of every possible objection. Yeah, and that's one of the troubling things about legalism is it wants to boil everything down to a list. And when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to faith, you can't boil everything down to a list. So thanks for sharing that. Well, Barnabas, as we come to the conclusion of this interview, we're just interested. What what is God teaching you right now? What are you most excited about? Yeah, I think even as we have this conversation, um, it, it has been an amazing thing and a real challenge to move from kind of writing from the outside of ministry towards ministers saying, hey, here are better ways to raise your kids. Here are things that your kids are dealing with. Here are things that I dealt with to moving into vocational pastoral ministry and realizing, oh, I'm the recipient for this now. I'm the one who has to raise my kids in light of everything we've just talked about. So my children are now pastor's kids. They're ministry kids. So what to, so to essentially it's been, it's been a hard and humbling thing to get to the place of dependence on God that they're in his hands. I, I, my goal is to be faithful and to, to, to follow my own, you know, follow my own teaching on this. Um, thankfully I've gone back and looked and I don't think I wrote anything that I disagree with. I just, I have to live up to it now, but then also realizing, oh, that only happens by the grace of God. My children are only saved by the grace of God. I'm, I'm not on the hook for their salvation. I am responsible for walking them into the presence of Christ and figuring out how to do that and keep it in a context where they don't, they don't come to hate the church. I think one of the most, the most burdensome things for me is, would be a reality where my children come to loathe going to church because of the pressures, the hypocrisy, the difficulties that could exist there. And so, yeah, just learning learning to live in a way that is faithful, but also dependent on the Lord and portrays the church as something beautiful and to be part of as a family, not as antagonistic to to them and to our family. And I mean, I'm really grateful. Our church does not make that difficult. Um, But I'm just sort of hyper aware of it because of the potential that exists. Man, thanks for having two conversations with us. Yeah, I've loved it both times. I'm sorry, listeners only got to hear one. (laughs) I like the second one better than the first one. (laughs) That's awesome. Why don't you tell us about your new book? Yeah, absolutely. My my latest book uh, just came out a few months ago. It's called Hoping for Happiness. Um, And it's an effort to find a realistic understanding of what happiness in this life looks like. So kind of splitting the, not splitting the difference, but finding the, the right kind of third perspective. So on the one hand, we have, you know, your conservative Christians who tend to be very suspicious of anything that smacks of worldliness, which is not necessarily a bad instinct, but it also means we we throw out a lot of good things with the bad things. And so we, we ignore God's good gifts and we're just not very happy people. And then on the other hand, you have sort of the worldly pursuit of happiness. That's just a manic chasing of the next pleasure, the next experience, the next promotion, the next whatever. And I just look at, you know, I see both of those and I go, neither of those seems what God intends. And so what does it look like to be realistically like have an earthy sort of happiness in this life with a real eye towards eternity? So we're not just we're not just waiting out this life till we get to heaven, because I think that's wrong. Mm. Neither are we 
trying to hang all of our happiness on things that can't bear it, these, these temporal things that are going away. And I lean a lot on Ecclesiastes in the book because I think it's this, this really remarkable depiction of don't, do not hang your eternal happiness on things that are vain, but also eat your bread and drink your wine with joy. Take, take pleasure in the wife of your youth. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And there's this, there's this whole like balance of don't put all your weight on all your hope in this. Do take pleasure in it because it's of God. And so the book is, it's not very long, maybe 140, 150 pages, just trying to walk through that realistically different areas of life. How, what does happiness look like now in a fallen world with an eye towards eternity? Man, I love that. So part of us, we are excited to read your books, and I think we need to do a giveaway here on the RFP. So tomorrow on all of our social media platforms, we're going to be doing a drawing for two of Barnabas's books. And so you maybe could win all three, or you could win one, but we're going to be giving away six books, two of each, and we are fired up about you getting these books in your hand to read. It's going to be a great giveaway. Barnabas, thank you for being a great example of a preacher's kid who has lived through the scrutiny and the weight of a preacher's kid. You know, in that quote that you gave that time, having to dress like a grandparent, act like Jesus, while somebody waited around to see if you were going to drink beer. You know, you've lived through that. We, the three of us have lived through that. But thank you for being an example of wrestling with doubt, wrestling with scrutiny, and still loving and serving Jesus and attempting to lead your family and others into the goodness of the gospel of Jesus. Well, yeah, it really is. It really has been God's grace, and I'm so grateful to come on and talk with you guys about it. I hope this has been an encouragement to listeners and to you guys. Well, you're my favorite piper, so thanks for being here with us on the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Guys, it's been a great episode. Can't wait to see you back next week. Be sweet. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also, go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.